Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Chui, Chui, which is of course a Japanese for Achtung, Achtung. I'd just like to fire my apologies out to any Japanese listeners before we get going. Um, uh, I thought we'd start with a tiny bit of Japanese today, of course, in tribute to the extraordinary story of Jack Hewison, the Scottish sailor who witnessed the dropping of the atomic bomb on uh, Hiroshima. For those of you who missed it, we do a Sunday morning special of the podcast featuring our listeners' family stories. Yesterday included the story of Jack, who was taken prisoner in the Far East and survived all kinds of hell. He was even used by the Japanese to help uh, with the cleanup of Hiroshima. Um, there are six of your family stories in each episode, and it's definitely worth 20 minutes of your time. I absolutely love it. I love reading them. I love hearing them uh, back. We hear a lot about the great and the good and plenty about the evil men of the Second World War. So it is fascinating 
to hear these lesser-known stories from the lives of uh, normal normal people. Talking the great and good, James Holland is with us. How are you, James? Yeah, no, I'm not too bad. I mean, the, the thing about it is, is it's such a it's such a lovely reminder that that actually what what certainly drew me to the um, subject in the first place was this idea of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Yeah. And here you've got it kind yeah. of writ large, all these people that otherwise you, they're just sort of forgotten, aren't they? You know, apart from yeah. to their immediate families. And, it, and it's lovely to be able to kind of, you know, I don't know, sort of give, a, give an airing and a, and a voice to these, these millions of people that, that played a massive part in the war. Well, and it's such a and and it's such an enormous story, you know. When you consider how many millions of people went through the army for yep. a start, um, you, you end up with these. You know, it, it's a way of painting a a bigger and more varied picture. I mean, I think the, the the what's great though is the response from the listeners. You've been absolutely fantastic sending this stuff in. Um, it, uh, like the subject of the Second World War itself, it seems your family stories are in a bottomless pit. So um, bring it on. Keep them coming, and we'll we'll keep keep reading them. Um, uh, I, it's interesting because I've just started reading um, with the Jocks, uh, the, oh, yeah, the yeah, Peter yeah. White book. Uh, um, yeah, we, and he keeps making this point. He keeps saying, um, "You know, we were we're not soldiers, uh, yeah. and we and we certainly didn't. And even if we are now, we certainly never uh, never chose that path. So here we are having to deal with it and all the things that. And he's you know he talk and he talks a lot about how you have to get your head round the danger you're in because. And because you're in a situation you never would have ever wanted to be in or find yourself in under any circumstances. It's a, fa- it's, it's a fascinating book. And that's Andrew Aitchison, who's one of our regular listeners, who's been banging yeah, on and on about... Well, it's, it's, 50, about, it's, it's a lowland division. It's a 52nd lowland It's the lowland division, 52nd lowland division. And it all starts off with the Walkeran thing, uh, you know, uh, to, to liberate the Scheldt, uh, p- 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 you know, in the in the last sort of quarter of the... Of, of 1944, it's absolutely, it's absolutely and fascinating. And you've got Operation Veritable to come as well, the Reichsfeld, exactly. and all that. So, so you're in yeah, for a treat. So some really, so some real uh, heavy stuff. Now you've uh, had, um, you've had a t- but, you've had a difficult weekend, haven't you? Because you you've got sick child. Yeah, we have a we have a poorly toddler here who had a temperature um, last week, and so of course we thought, oh God, the uh, COVID's got into the house. But she's she tested negative, so we're all right. But we've had a lot of disturbed. I've had a lot of st- disturbed sleep, James. You, I mean, maybe you look quite well on it. Reading, you look quite well on it. Well, I think I think it's I think uh, I've been kept up as well by this book about the Walker and the fighting <laughs> on the Walker and Peninsula. <laughs> oh, this whole stuff with the Germans. The Germans just have obviously got you know they they've been sitting there expecting this for a while. So all their artillery's keyed in on all the you know they'll know which house is which. They'll go all right. Well, more to house four then. And they they just adjust and fire their mortar. You know, you know what I mean. Yeah. Is their their defence is completely prepared, and uh, again, it's that it's you also get that impression of certainly by this period of the war, the colossal Allied um, uh, resources, might, depth of pockets, and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's a it's a it's a cracking read. But again, it's ordinary people. Um, it's an ordinary guy yes. having um, to deal with this. I mean, shit, I mean, basically. right now I'm doing this this. I'm 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 on Operation Blue Coat and and I'm doing this particular yeah. again where I've been having I've been sort of getting stuck with aerial photographs from from the time. I mean it's been absolutely fascinating. Oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah, but 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 again you can you can start okay, so I've got I've got four different accounts they're all different. Um but but the one that's that was written closest to the time is clearly the one that rings the most true. There's a sort of suddenly flung in there from somebody else as an account of typhoons coming in and hitting a tiger tank and the turret going up in the air. And you're thinking, 
Well, I know that did happen, but but why isn't that mentioned in the account that was written much more contemporaneously? So I've I've, I've chosen to just ignore that just that bit. That's just not going in because I'm I'm not convinced <laughs> it actually happened. But but what you can see is is you can see the roads, you can see where it all works out. You can also see how it's just this tiny little tiny little um um engagement that lasts best part of a day. Quite a few people get killed. Um, it's pretty bitter if you're you're caught up in it. But in the big scheme of things, you know, it's just another little kind of footnote yeah. somewhere in a war diary of, of yeah. no great constants. But of course, for those people caught up in it, it's absolutely you know it's a day of complete terror yeah. and adrenaline surging yeah. and all the rest of it. And yet again, it reminds you that for every every bit, you know, every, you might have this huge column behind you, you might have this long shaft of the spear behind yeah. you, but you've still got to you know the point of the spear has got to do the hard yards and at some point you know they're knowing that the germans are going to make a stand on this march south they've now hit it and it is the infantry and the guys in the tanks who've got to take the deep breath and go into that yeah knowing that every yard they take every step they take could potentially be their last and I just don't know how you yeah. cope with that relentlessly over and over and over and over again. And of course, the truth is, is lots of people couldn't after a while. Yeah, yeah, and 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 fair enough. I mean, that's the other thing is that it, it, when you read about this stuff, if someone cracks up, well, of course they do. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, and it feels sort of churlish to even. Uh, yeah. I don't know. You can't pass judgment on that. That's the. That, I mean, that's the thing. You can pass judgment on all sorts of other things, but on that, I think um, uh, it, it's very hard to to have a to, to damn anyone in this situation, isn't it? Yeah, that's I think thing. so. I mean, I, I I don't know. I I suppose I'm just sort of thinking. Yes, it's true that we've got all this artillery behind us. You know, yes, it's true that the sort of typhoons can be called up if you need to, and it is yeah. true that you've got these it's sort of. You know, you are going to win. There's that. There's absolutely no doubt. But yeah. It, you know, you try telling that to the infantryman who's got to kind of take that leap of faith and kind of go and take on the enemy. I mean, you know, machine yeah. guns bursting and uh, you yeah. know, firing and, and mortars yeah. screwing all around you. You know, it still takes absolute yeah. nuts of steel to do what they yeah. do. The other thing, I, was, I, I went up to... Um, so I've got my, my dodges up in a, in a shipping container in a lock-up on a farm, kind of, you know, up the yeah. tougher end of the valley. So I thought, well, I'll go and walk up there. So it was a nice sort of clear day. So I walked up. And so having having finished the um, the TMS podcast, I then moved swiftly back onto <laughs> um, a little bit of uh, uh, um, military history visualised and was listening again to, to Sernke Nietzsche, who got yeah. me thinking. Uh, and... It was just fascinating again about. I mean, he was talking about sort of how they dis, they issued knights crosses and how it wasn't ideological. It really was for for bravery, and and you tended right. to get them more if you weren't killed. You know, there weren't that many posthumous ones because the whole point That's was not not to get killed. The point was to do something heroic and brilliant leadership without getting killed. You know, right? Because so many officers did get killed. I mean, obviously they did do posthumous knights crosses and stuff. But really, the Knight's Cross is an absolute, you know, that that is a stamp of you have really achieved a huge amount and you're still alive. That was was, was really? the message, which I thought was the, really, really interesting. That's really because the VC, the VC, as often as it tends to be dead people, doesn't it? Yeah, it'd be interesting to know what the percentage is, but I would say it's probably at least 75 percent, isn't it? It must be, if not 80. Yeah, that would be the that would be a, a good number to crunch, actually, wouldn't it? Someone yeah. out there will know so, um, what the what the what the proportion is, because it tends to be, you know, uh, Bloke, bloke storms 
three consecutive machine gun posts on his own and then drops dead on the third one, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, it's the... Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, I was listening to that, and then and then I got sort of stuck on on, on you know it said you know why the Luftwaffe failed, and I thought well you know I'm pretty I reckon I pretty much know that one, but uh, <laughs> let, let's, let, let, let's see what they've got to say. And of course, you know, you know, arrogant me, I you know there there was definitely some points I hadn't thought about, and the big point that I hadn't really I had sort of touched on, but not really kind of thought, given much thought to, was the lack of a fleet air arm for for the Kriegsmarine. There just, yeah. there just wasn't one, and, and Goering refused. And I was just thinking, God, you know, Goering really was rubbish, wasn't he? And isn't it amazing <laughs> that had had he been operating for, you know, had he been operating in the Soviet Union, he wouldn't still be, you know, he just would not have survived till 1945. No. Not no. a chance. And it, and it's no. and it's odd that, that Hitler doesn't quite have the same ruthlessness as Stalin, I don't think. And certainly not well, with his immediate was, circle. Hit, well, yeah, but that, that that's... Hitler's sort of um, uh, 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 tendency towards indecision, isn't it? As much yeah. as anything else, is that is that he'd rather they're all fighting each other, and that's that saves him having to make a decision, uh, uh, isn't it? Was Stalin is all about siloing the power in himself yes. and using 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 people to do uh, to to do his bidding until they run out of uh, until he he decides they're no use to him anymore, and when they're no use to anymore. They tend to end up, um, you know, purged, don't they? That's yeah. the, 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 there's such a difference in style, in actual fact. Yeah. And there, you know, there is that the, like, at the end of the war, Hitler saying, "Oh, Stalin had it right." You know, it's a thing we've talked about before. Yeah. Stalin had it right. I wish I'd been as ruthless as him. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Go, going wouldn't have lasted five minutes in the Soviet I mean, he's Union. so <laughs> shit. I mean, he's such yeah. a terrible commander. It's not true. Uh, and actually, I was thinking <laughs> again. I was sort of thinking more about this this whole thing about the lack of a fleet air arm. And it is really, really interesting because the Condors, which was this, I think there were 30 of them operating in the Bay of Biscay. Yeah. There was certainly no yeah. more than that. And they account yeah. for something like 87 sunk Allied vessels. Right. And they're not even, they're not even bombers. You know, they're civilian aircraft that have been specially adapted. Yeah. So they're not even kind of sort of really fit for purpose. And they achieve that. And, you know, what could the Luftwaffe stroke a Kriegsmarine fleet air arm have achieved had they gone all out for kind of, you know, ports and shipping and stuff in the well, Western approaches. Well, just twice as, twice as many Condors, you know. Twice um, as many Condors, uh, yeah, and all the rest of it. You know, there, there just isn't, yeah. there, there isn't that. And and that sort of gets you thinking again about the Battle of the Atlantic and, you know, those early years particularly. I mean, you, you know, I've argued that, that, that the Germans get to the point where they're not going to win the Battle of the Atlantic by May 1941 because of the loss of new yeah. machines, codes, Bismarck, yeah. um, not enough U-boats, you know, loss of really key aces and all the rest of it. And the fact that their their bar at the start is just so low, you know, it's 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 such a small yeah. force. Yeah, but it's really interesting in that opening opening sequence of the of the war how they sort of blow it by the wrong tactics and by just not having enough of anything, you know. And... But they're newbies at, at naval power anyway. They're not, an, you know, you're talking about, you're talking about a continental land power, aren't you? Well, um, trying yeah, to figure except, out, except, you know. Up, 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 against, up against a country that's been dominant na- for 200 years in the naval department, you know. Yeah, yeah but their navy was pretty the, good in the First World War, wasn't it? You know, U-boats causing all sorts well, of mess well, and the Imperial Fleet and all the rest of it. It's pretty huge. Yeah, but how much, yes, but, but, but... There's so much, there's so much, um, you know, when you look at the pre-First World War panic about the Germans, are the Germans ever going to catch up um, uh, with their rearmament of their navy? And there's political panic in Britain about that. 
which doesn't stack up if you crunch the numbers. There's no way the Germans could could ever possibly catch up with the Royal Navy in terms of numbers. And there's an awful lot. There, there, there's, there, there is that thing of, you know, if not if not now, when would the Royal Navy ever be ready for for war? Isn't there? There's that mm. constant. There's that constant refrain. Yeah. But the I, I don't know. I think that, that and that's the sort of Navy, the Navy clutching its pearls and saying, oh, no, we still we need another we need another four heavy cruisers or whatever they always need the navy always needs more doesn't it yes if you ask that if you ask the navy any period in this history in fact until after the second world war when you know the atlee government basically scuttles the royal navy and replaces it decides it doesn't need one anymore yeah. and and the, the uk backs away as a naval power after the after the war but i don't know it it I don't know. They're 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 very new, aren't they? And the cool heads in the Royal Navy, after all, are few and are also few and far between. In the summer of nineteen forty, aren't they? The yeah. people who go, ah, don't worry, don't worry about. It. They're not going to they're not going to invade. They can't possibly. Yeah. There's not many people saying that, and that might be because the Navy's talked itself into believing that the Kriegsmarine is a real threat and all that sort of thing. Well, and also they've had, they've, had, they've had a series of bloody noses, haven't they? Because, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, right from the word go. First of all, the, the Athena, which is admittedly as a civilian uh, liner, gets sunk yeah. on the 3rd of September, the first day of the Britons in war. Then on the 14th of September, you've got you, uh, is it you 39 firing at the Ark Royal and yeah. missing. And then, and then some skewers go off the Ark Royal. They're yeah. on a they're on a U boat hunt, and, yeah. and they probably sink it. But then a little bit later, they then attack. I think it's U thirty, mm. and the bombs from the skewers skip off the water. They're they're special anti submarine bombs, sort of. I suppose a bit like depth charges, yeah. and they skip yeah. off the water, detonate and bring down both aircraft that have dropped them. <laughs> Oh, so they're sort of thinking, well, okay, this isn't going very well. And then, and then it's HMS Courageous goes out, doesn't it? Uh, I think just a yeah. few days later, and then probably gets sunk by, yeah. I don't know, what is it? U- but you've U- got, 29. You've got so much. So, 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 but, so but, suddenly but, you've had, you've had w- w- Art Royal, which has had a near miss and lost two skewers yeah. and dive bombing a U boat. Yeah. Then you've had uh, HMS Courageous actually sunk. Um, yeah. And so they're sort of thinking, okay, well, this isn't, you know, well, we're not really also, equipped for this. Not, and there's an awful lot of prestige bound. Yeah, but there's an awful lot of prestige bound up in the navy too, isn't there? So yeah. the navy's the navy's got lots of things going on in it before you even before you even get to how it, it it's its role. You know, it's it's totemistic, isn't it? The Royal yeah. Navy. It's the it's the thing that won the Battle of Trafalgar. That's what it that's what it is in its it, 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 you know it's the senior service as well. It's the one and it, between the wars, it's the one one of the, the the only one of the arms that's still having consistently large amounts of money spent on it. New ships laid down and all that sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah. And new tech, you know, they're inventing aircraft carriers. They're pushing on with the technology and the and the tactics in a way that the the army aren't allowed to, and the air force sort of until the last minute, the air force really aren't allowed to. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, you know, absolutely. But they've lost one of their precious aircraft carriers in September 1939 yeah. to a U-boat. Yeah. So you can see why they're yeah. sort of slightly... And then Gunter goes in in October, doesn't he? Goes into Scapa Flow and, and sinks the Royal yeah. Lake with 900 people dead. Yeah. You know, at yeah. sort of point-blank range. And everyone sort of thinks, crikey. OK, so yeah. you can see why there is this sort of, you know, everyone's sort of sweating a little bit. You know, yes, we have got a lot, you know, we have got a strength. We have got the largest navy in the world, but this could easily go badly wrong if we're not careful. I mean, I think I think there's something like in the first six months of the war, Royal Navy sinks two U-boats. It's not, it's not yeah. a great return. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> what, what is also interesting, though, is in the entire war, um, German surface warships sink... 47 
vessels using guns. Is that it? That's it. Well, you know, it's well, not a lot. Nothing to worry about. There was nothing to worry about then. No, no, there isn't. <laughs> but it also makes you realise just just how badly the you know the Germans yeah, got it with the, with the Z plan and yeah. that huge kind of yeah. fleet of surface fleets when they really really should have been building more U boats, more Condors. More, More condors, yeah, yeah, and thinking about a fleet air arm. But you know, Hitler, you know, Goering doesn't like it because he's a control freak, and and you know he likes being the daddy man, and so hmm. you know it's just not allowed. But no one, you know, no one in the top echelons of, of the Nazi hierarchy sort of goes, well, you know, maybe Herman, you know, you just need to get back in your box a little bit on this one. And this is why, and this is why and there's no German aircraft, uh, aircraft carrier, for instance. Although, you know, if you're again, we got well, we've got to remember. Is the war they're planning for? They don't expect to have control of the west coast of France, ever. No. And be a, and be able to run U-boats out of Brest. They don't expect to be able to do that. No. It, 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 it's all it that 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 you know when the, the planning they're doing from the beginning of you know from 1933 onwards that that's they don't for a minute imagine that they're going to conquer France the way they do. Do they? No. It, it, but, but but that uh, makes the so, whole idea of a surface fleet even more bonkers because you need overseas possessions yeah, yeah. to kind of maintain them at yeah. sea and they don't have yeah, any. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just like, yeah, exactly. What are they thinking? I mean, it just yeah. it just makes no sense at all. They have this yeah. one brief opportunity in the, in the second half of the 1930s to build a sizable U-boat fleet and they don't do it. They don't take it. They have this one yeah. opportunity to kind of, you, you know, and they're not, they're not, you know, they've got, they've got, you know, the, the Junkers 88, which they're developing as a long-range tactical bomber. Yeah. It'll be so useful at sea. And, and you know, they sort of go, no, it's got to have dive-bombing capabilities and it's got to be this and, you know, and it sort of gets slower and it gets late and, you know, they just don't have it. Yeah. And, you know, and it's and it's not available for anybody, let alone a, a non-existent fleet air arm. I mean, it's just, it's just, you just see that sort of decision make. You know, we're, we're so consumed by the kind of successes of 1939 to 1941 that, that that sometimes we, I think, you know, we forget that they're making these sort of catastrophically bad strategic and operational decisions all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. Although, 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 so many of those, so many of those decisions are bound up in in the fact that the <laughs> turn out to be the wrong decisions because the war goes in a completely different direction to the one they ever imagined. They're, expe- right. they're expecting to fight the French and the British in, in a sort of static front line like the First World War, probably, and come to some kind of political conclusion, aren't they? Yeah, that's what they're, I guess that's so. what think is That's what they think is going to happen. So, if, so of course, they don't think... Of course, I mean, this, this again, everyone's taken by surprise by what happens in, in May 1940, especially the Germans, which is why when you get into, you know, and we've talked about sea line quite a lot. Well, the minute you get into sea line, it's the last thing they, of course, it wasn't going to succeed because it's the last thing they ever imagined they'd ever have to plan for. Whereas a thing like D-Day, they've been imagining planning D-Day since Dunkirk, the Allies, yeah. that, the, the, you know, they've been thinking about having to reverse that since then. Whereas in invading britain is like if you if you're a prussian if you're a prussian military uh, you know uh, from a prussian military family you have never ever entertained the thought that you would invade england it's um yes yeah, la la land stuff isn't it it's completely like you Mos- marching on moscow absolutely marching on paris sure no problem yeah. but, but but and marching on vienna if if push comes to shove but never ever getting to london so that so 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 many of the decisions that bind them after that massive success that they made before that come from a different strategic mindset. You know, the the, the strategic shockwave that we've talked about, strategic earthquake that we've talked about, rather, 
goes in all directions and, and it affects the people who inflicted it as much as it does the people on the receiving end of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm sure that's absolutely true. But but I still go back to my original point about the Navy, which is the Christmas, <laughs> which is if if that is your view, then then you yeah, you yeah. know you're going to be you're you're going to be you're not you're not going to be invading Britain. You're not going to be doing stuff yeah. on the Bay of Biscay or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. But but you you are suspecting that Britain could easily be an enemy. And and what is yeah, the yeah, best so... way to stop Britain is to cut off its supply lines because it's an island. Yeah. What's the best way yeah. to do that? Lots of submarines, as proved but, by nineteen seventeen. But, but it's but again, it's politics, and it's uh, politics. Nazi politics is so much about conspicuous consumption, and buying a load of U-boats ain't nothing like as sexy as having a battleship. Of course, that 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 has as many guns as a British battleship. You know, so look, see, we're competing with yeah. the world's greatest navy, right? Yeah. You know, it, it it it's as simple as that, isn't it? And and so much of the, you know, so much of rearmament in the in the late thirties is a conspicuous consumption thing. It's a thing of the government sh- showing it. You know, sticking two fingers up at Versailles as much as anything else. That there's so many, there's so many reasons to rearm other than simply fighting a war in the politics of the Nazi state, aren't there? Yeah. And building big, big building big battleships. You know, is 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 je- they're so about they're so into gesture politics. You buy a you 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 buy a Bismarck, you're doing your gesture politics, aren't you? Whereas buying U-boats and the other thing is buying U-boats demonstrates to your potential enemies that you're actually serious about going to war with them. It's the other problem. After all, you know, when you when you you know, if you if you, it, it's that thing. If you if you if you buy a load of tanks and you paint them yellow, then all the desert nations in the world are going to be worried about what you what you have in store for them. <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. The great thing about you, though, is you can sort of keep it underwater, keep it secret. Well, of, well, of course, well, of course, in my underwater but you, but, but you, lair. <laughs> but you but you get my you get my point is, do, is the, yeah. is the the politics of it anyway anyway the, um, the net uh, result of my my long walk was that I yeah. did manage to get uh, get to uh, Barrack St John and pick up my Dodge and um you know the Chrysler engine engine having not been started since December and it was about minus one yesterday afternoon started first time yeah really yeah that's why we won the war isn't it wow you know the American automobile industry fantastic yeah no it was and, uh, you know. You want to take that out in the snow, don't you? Though, and ideally, yeah. I just don't have any at the moment. It's just, it's just, it's freaking cold. But yeah, I want to take it out in the snow in my convertible snow jacket. Al, just be nippy driving around in that. And yeah, yeah, you need a parker in this weather in that thing. Fortunately, I've got one. Nippy driving. Yeah, thank God. (laughs) You can wear your noddy suit. (laughs) My pixie suit. Yeah, good too. Yeah, Yeah, fantastic. (laughs) Right now we've um um. Uh, we, we what we did there, ladies and gentlemen, is we digress a little. Um, we I know didn't. we're always, de- I know we're always <laughs> demanding you send us your questions, observations, even occasional corrections. So I thought I'd read you a message we received from regular listener Tim Vaughan, who sent us the following. This is really good. I think we should take a minute to recognise the achievement of planning and implementation of the Winston Special Convoys and the Royal Navy and Merchant Navy young men who gave their lives on these operations. I've been researching my grandfather's service in the 14th Army and find this element of his wartime experience fascinating and yet hardly ever mentioned. Convoys comprised fast troop ships, which had to be capable of maintaining uh, 19 knots and ranged from luxury liners to old peeling steamers. The first convoy, WS1, was in 1941, um, and it contained Cunard liners, escorts, escorted by Prince Philip, a midshipman on HMS Kent. 
The convoys routed from Glasgow or Liverpool to the Middle East or Bombay and stopped at Freetown, Cape Town or Durban on the way. They, this is what we saw Harry Birrell yeah. on in, that, in the That's Harry right, Birrell yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah, Soldiers have vivid memories, memories of these convoys, from boxing matches to church services on deck, crossing the line, buying the, um, from the bum boats in Freetown, being serenaded by soprano Perla Gibson, the lady in white on Durban, South African hospitality, witnessing apartheid, the list goes on. The largest convoys held 20 ships, escorted by a chain of destroyers through the, throughout the journey. Sometimes a troop ship held over 3,000 men plus equipment. By the end of the war, some 2 million men had been ferried across the globe by these convoys, a remarkable achievement and a remarkable sacrifice by the crews who did not return home. Yeah. Now, wow, thing, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, they were amazing, yeah. but I mean, I mean, the Queen Mary was another one that, that I mean, I remember when the 1st Infantry Division came came over in, let's say, spring of 9 to April or so, 1942. Yeah. Um, they yeah. came over on the Queen Mary, and it was something like eight thousand of them crammed into this this ship that should normally take kind of two and a half or something or three. Yeah, you know. So yeah. they really they really sort of pat them to the gunnels. Um, the yeah. the thing is, of course, is that that the most vulnerable ships to U-boats at any point in the war were independents, but not yeah. fast independents like these ships that could really really motor and could operate faster than any U-boat by a country mile. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, slow independence, and it's the slow independence yeah. that really, really struggled. Which is why, of yeah. course, you, we immediately put them into kind of um, convoys, and and those yeah. convoys. I mean, I think it was something like only thirteen percent in the first two years of war were were, were damaged. Yeah, of all yeah. ships that were in convoys. Um, yeah. Whereas the moment something went wrong and you became a straggler, then you were you were in. You were absolutely toast, and it's a well, bit it's like, like watching a bunch of sort of yes. wildebeest with the African. I was going to say it's like dogs. a wild wildlife film, isn't it? It yeah, really exactly. is. Yeah, it's the, it's the straggler at the back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, but but those fast ships, they they tended not to. I don't think we ever lost a, a, a troop ship in in the war, right. and that's because new boats were so slow under the surface they could only really kind of yeah. operate at, at walking pace. Um, so they yeah. need to be on the surface. And the best they could do, I think, was about 14 knots. And, of course, you know, a Cunard liner is going at sort of 19 to 25, something like that. Yeah. But this also, I mean, it takes me right back to one of our very earliest podcasts. This is why Madagascar, all of a sudden, after the fall of Singapore, suddenly becomes so important. Yes, indeed. Um, because if the if the Japanese can operate subs from there, um, this whole thing falls apart. And you, you can't ferry people round the Cape to um uh to india and the whole you know you you can't you can't maintain a presence in that theater and then indians india's in peril yeah um which which, which is you know shows the sort of glo global global dimension of convoying like this doesn't it is that uh yeah you're, you're suddenly dealing with gigantic a gigantic strategic picture but but it's also to do with naval intelligence and, and what is so impressive right from the very very start of the war is that 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 britain the Royal Navy has this thing called the Naval Control of Shipping, the NCS, mm. which basically is tracking every single ship in the world. And they're able to do this because they've got intelligence bases around the entire planet. And that, of course, is because of overseas interests, because of the empire and all the rest of it, which means that basically every inch of the, of the oceans can be covered. And, and they know exactly yeah. where, pretty much where every ship is and, 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 and what its course is yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And this is... This is transmitted by a thing called Veska, which is um, is a kind of sort of 
secret telegraph system, Morse code for delivering messages yeah. to, to track these ships. And what that means is that you can sort of dodge where enemy ships are and enemy U-boats are and all the rest of it as, mm. to a pretty large degree. Which wow. is why a lot of those troop ships are able to get a getaway. Obviously, you still need an escort. Um, yeah. You know, nothing could be more catastrophic than kind of losing a, tr- uh, a troop ship. A troop ship, yeah. But you're also, when you're embarking, you're you're pretty confident you're going to be okay. A, because the, the, the troop ships are really fast. There's not a U-boat in the... There's not a submarine in the world that can catch them when they're at full full lick. Secondly, mm. they've got protection. Thirdly, you kind of pretty much know where the, where the enemy is for the most part. Yeah. Gosh, well, thank you, Tim, for bringing that. Tim Vaughan for uh, sending that in. Um, We're going to take a very short break now. We'll be back in a second. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. Um, so we've we've another we've another piece of uh, correspondence, Jim. Um, this is this is interesting too. Um, this is from Jack Gus Adamson. Oh yes. Uh, cheers, gent. Yeah, cheers, gentlemen. Tonight I was enjoying a scotch and listening to your pod on gliders. In it, you had a bit of discussing the ceremonial burial of the dead. The most fascinating episode of this that I found occurred in April of '45 aboard the USS Missouri off Okinawa. A 19-year-old kamikaze pilot crashed his Zero into the starboard side of the battleship, resulting in only minor damage and no casualties. The charred body of the pilot was found in the twisted wreckage. The crew was going to throw it overboard with the garbage until the captain of the ship stepped in and ordered a proper military burial for him. The decision damn near triggered a mutiny from the crew as a suicide attack didn't exactly have the respect. Nonetheless, 
A Japanese flag was hastily hand-sewn and draped over the body as it's committed to the deep in a ceremony complete with a three-volley rifle salute. If memory serves me correctly, there's still a dent in the side of the Missouri where the aircraft struck. Wow. That's wow. interesting. That cap- well, I've never that heard that. Captain, no, that captain stuck his neck out there. I mean, I can imagine the crew not being best pleased with that. No. No, how extraordinary. <laughs> I still just find it absolutely amazing that the USS Missouri was involved in the Gulf War. You know, it's absolutely incredible, isn't it? Still it's firing from a far, firing long range shells from out at sea all those years. Well, on. I suppose they they had it on their inventory. They might as well use it. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's amazing. I, I've just never heard of that. But yeah, yeah. that's um, uh, yeah, that's that's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, Actually, I've got a new book to read about the surrender, which I think was came from uh, Ernest Malley. I think he recommended it. Um, uh, here we are. Unconditional. Oh, no, I'm reading it. Oh, I'm reading good. it. I'm reading it. Well, I've read it. Yeah, I've read it. So much of it. Galicia. So much of it. It's very interesting. So much of it is Roosevelt. The the, the, the announcement of it and Roosevelt trying to get it through. Um, uh, the, the politics is. He, Roosevelt goes on and on about the Civil War as his reason for doing it, and that um, it's got precedent in American history. And he, and, you know, and every and and he's and he does that kind of like everyone like a bit Trump like everyone knows this, uh, and, and it's. He basically riffed it, made it up, um, used it as a way of bouncing it into people's imaginations. It wasn't particularly the case. Um, and then and then he talks about and, and the uh, it's the same guy who wrote um, uh, 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 Downfall, the, the book about the book about the, the American invasion of Japan. Oh, yes. It's of the course. same yeah, guy. Yes, yes. Which I've also yeah, yeah. got. It's, 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 so it's his patch. Yeah. And um, it's it's very very interesting, and so much of it is 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 internal American politics and his attempt to basically sort of uh, uh, shore things up politically. And then after the afterwards, it turns into a Cold War question. Hmm. Um, okay, uh, you know the, the cold. Was it cold, good though? Cold. It is really good. It's really really good. It's really really interesting. And and the and the fact that that they then have to find a form of unconditional surrender that the Japanese can agree to. <laughs> you know, well, because they've got because they because they allow the emperor to continue. There's clearly there's they they have to, the Americans. You know, it, it works on the unconditional. It, it, the book kind of suggests it work. You know, unconditional surrender kind of works with the Germans, but with the Japanese, it gets more complex because of the emperor's position and uh, 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 in Japanese society and in Japanese politics and what and what he offers you. You know, if you leave the emperor in place, you, it offers you a kind of um, cultural continuity. That allows you to say the war's an aberration, um, and uh, you know, and the poor emperor, if only he'd known. There's a bit of that. There's a bit of that yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, built, built into it. Isn't that interesting? As a way of as a way of bringing the war to an end, and you know, it's tied up in the atomic bomb decisions as well. The the, the sheer cost of invading mainland Japan, mm. um, and that of and of enforcing an unconditional surrender. In fact, um, uh, well, maybe we can come up with formulate something come up with right. something and they're talking about that even as roosevelt's sort of said we're going to do unconditional surrender there's immediately people going nah, we're gonna to have to fix probably have to figure something out with the japanese because <laughs> i don't know that this will work it's, it's really really interesting and in and, and it's a short book he gets yeah. it down into you know it's a couple of hundred pages and he c- covers the whole thing the po- i mean again it's this sort of um you know Ru- roosevelt roosevelt He's a fixer, isn't he? He's that's yeah. that's his skill. That's his that's his political style. He's good at um, he's good at sort of fixing things immediately in front of him, and then keeping them fixed and all that sort of stuff. And that's that's what unconditional that's the origins of unconditional surrender. Anyway, it's fascinating. Um, 
Well worth a read. Right, well, we've got add another one more. The, add, add it to the other kind of you know, know. 421 I mean, books. I know, I know. This doesn't get any easier, does it? I mean... No, <laughs> no and the friends... Every so often I suddenly think, I've got, you know, I must read some sort of contemporary fiction or, or, or some, well, a friend, you know, something about the Anglo-Saxons well, uh, or something. <laughs> well, and a friend sent me a book the other day about, you know, a book about a book, a, a book about comedy, you know, about about... About my actual line of work, and and I really ought to, I really ought to read it, you know, to know to know what this guy thinks about stuff, to get an insight. But it's never going to happen. I've, I'm stuck on the Walkeran. Anyway, well, um, I'm 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 reading this novel, The Warriors of the Working Warriors for the Working Day by Peter Elstom. It's so good about a tank crew in Normandy and beyond. It's so it's so well written. I mean, it's right up there with From the City from the Plough. Yeah, really. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, well, we 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 got. I mean, the longer this lockdown goes on, we need we're going to need more audio books. We hope, by the way, you're um, the patrons are enjoying the Molly Panted Downs. By the way, um, right, we've another we've another we've another. Um, this is very interesting. Hi guys, this is from David Langmead. Um, hi guys, I've been listening intently to the Wings of Pegasus, read so well by Al, thank you, which reminded me of an article I read relating to a unique parachute force named the Triple Nickels. They are unique in that they were the first all-black parachute infantry battalion. Given that black soldiers were usually given more menial tasks than the US military at the time, mainly due to the legacy of segregation, with the exception of the Tuskegee Airmen, this group were brought together as the 555th Airborne Infantry Battalion, hence the Triple Nickels. These guys were slated to be deployed to Europe to reinforce the troops there, but at last minute got sidelined to take part in a secret operation in the US. There was a threat by the Japanese to send incendiary bombs via balloons to the west coast of the US with a view to starting large-scale fires. Yes, I mean, as desperate measures go, the 555th (laughs) were to be used to parachute into the area to extinguish the fires before they took hold. I'd love to hear more about the contribution of black servicemen in the war. Keep up the good work. Regards, Dave Langmead. Well, I mean, I I, I didn't know about them, but obviously the Americans, they vacillate enormously about whether to use black um, soldiers in combat, don't they? Yeah, um, no, they do, they do, and um, um, you know they had a thing called the Advisory Committee on Negro Troop Policies. They did. Um, that I mean, that that would talk about what they were going to do with with black soldiers. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's Eleanor Roosevelt who who paves a way for the um, Tuskegee Airmen because yeah. Hap Arnold just says no, absolutely no way. Yeah, um, and she says that's absolutely ridiculous. You no, know, I want you to make this happen. Um, and gets you know FDR involved, and it, and it and it does happen, and the and the net result is that you know they're, they're among the best pilots pilots they have because they've they've yeah. trained so hard, and yeah, it's the yeah. it's the 99th fighter squadron that goes out first to North Africa, yeah, um, yeah. and then develops into the uh, into the Tuskegee Airmen and the you know the whatever it is fighter group and all the rest of it, yeah, but but um, yeah, no, I, the, I I went to interview um, a guy who was in the 92nd Buffalo Division, um, he lived in kind of just north of of Washington D.C. I'm just trying to remember his name. Albert, he was called. Albert Burke, that was it. And he was amazing. I mean, you know, he he was a he was a he was from one of the unionist states. Um yeah. and <laughs> um you know, he was educated and or, you know, reasonably so and all the rest of it. Um and he'd never really experienced any racism until he joined the army and got into the ninety second yeah. division. And of course, what oh, they God. did was they they created the ninety second division and then had it completely officered by southern white men. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, and and by the yeah. time they get to Italy, their morale is absolutely rubbish. Yeah, because they've just been yeah. shat on by 
by the white officers. And I can't remember the name of the yeah. of the commanding general, major general, whoever he was. But I mean, you know, he was an absolute white side supremacist asshole. Yeah, yeah. And you know, yeah. it's very I mean, the... very difficult for them. But I mean, lots and lots of black troops involved in the Second World War, of course. Uh, lots of service troops, um, and lots of them did see frontline action in the end. Yeah. Well, th- this battalion after the war was then in, um, was then integrated into the well first of all the, the paratroopers went into the u.s 82nd airborne division which became the first integrated division jim gavin's division of course became the yeah. first integrated division uh, of the of the of the american army yeah so it leads it leads somewhere yes this but they did do firefighting they did do they did do put out lo- they did put out loads of fires i mean I've, I've i've jumped on the internet to find this out but they they did actually do the this job they were given to them i mean it's extraordinary isn't it though you train people as as parachute infantrymen and we've talked about this so much on here how expensive airborne soldiers are that they're you know they're volunteers they're skin in the game people mm. they're you know they, they, they they're possessed of all the martial qualities you could possibly hope for and you use them as a fire brigade Literally, in this instance, rather than the sort of yes, bonkers, they're a military fire brigade. It's, it's completely ridiculous. But, but I also think we, you know, obviously today we think it's we, it, and it is completely ridiculous that you would have a black fighter group, that you would have a black yeah. division. I mean, that's absurd. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, quite yeah. rightly, you know, that they, they've all become f- fully integrated. You know, as you would expect. Yeah. And I, and I suppose, you know. It seems incredibly backward now, but but you know, these were the first steps, weren't they? You know, yeah. the integration yeah. that, that followed in the years that followed at the end of the Second World War, I suppose the seeds of that was those those, those black treats proving what they could do yeah. in World War Two. Yeah. Well, um, that's all we've got time for today. Um, we'll be we're back on Thursday morning with Andrew Chatterton. Um, talking about the stay behinds and the auxiliary units. That was a fantastic chat. Really, really interesting. Yeah, it wasn't and, it? Uh, faintly blood curdling. Um, and then uh-huh. we're uh, and then talking of talking of gliders, we've also got we've got Chalky Peters coming on. We've got to, we've got to fix yes, up we, a time for him, but he's he's very. We do up need for to fix up a time with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and he yeah, interviewed yeah. loads uh, of those people, and he said said he's got strong views on Rock and um, Chatterton, so he can. He well, can everyone's got that. This is you're either a rock man or a Chatterton man. That's what it comes down to. Well, I don't you, think you he. Had... I don't think he. I don't think he is. I mean, I think when he says he's got strong views, he's got you know he's got a lot of detail that he can. Right, he can explain why there was this A or B kind because of uh, st- uh, because um, there was a there was an interesting debate over the weekend about um, Operation Deadstick, so called, right? The, the, yeah. the se- seizing of the. Uh, of Pegasus Bridge, Horse Bridge, Common Canal, on, or, uh, and the Orne Bridge, it wasn't called that. That's a that's a name that has come to the fore since the nineteen nineties. Yeah. yeah, how it, it turns no out. Idea. Yeah, yeah, Chalky's Chalky's in Chalky's into looking at that. Maybe comes from Stephen Ambrose, um, wow. and the, the the records at the time refer to it as, as Operation Coup de Main. Yeah, yeah how about that? It's yeah. Interesting. There you go. Anyway, anyway, um, uh, we're live streaming again on Thursday night, um, 8.30 um, as always. We hope you enjoyed last week's with Wade. Um, uh, fascinating, that was, if a bit if a bit gloomier than our usual um, uh, content. No, we'll, but we'll see things, you then. We'll we hope... things up this week. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> we'll see you all soon. Cheerio. Cheers. <laughs>